Finally, welcome to the first episode of the 3AM Talk Show Podcast. It's good to finally be here. Welcome to the podcast where we talk to anyone and everyone willing to talk to me. In today's inaugural episode, we will have Dennis Moynihan. Dennis is a Democracy Now! contributor and a Denver resident. He joined me to talk about the state of media and journalism in today's world, as well as grassroots activism. Without further ado, here he is. Welcome to the 3AM talk show podcast, Dennis. Uh, You're our first guest, or my first guest, so it's lovely to have you. I'm honored. (laughs) And I am really, really glad that you came on because I wanted to talk to you specifically about a few things since, you know, you're you're kind of an expert, (laughs) just a little bit. On a relative scale, maybe. Sure, I'll, <laughs> I'll allow that. Yeah, so first, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about was social media and how Twitter is affecting journalism because Twitter is a very interesting thing to me because I, as someone who is uh, considered a young person, I'm not on very many social media platforms and so when it was recommended to me that I look for journalists on social media, I was kind of amazed that there was a lot of people, a lot of journalism going on. And I was wondering what you did and how you use Twitter in journalism. Well, Twitter, you know, I kind of think of it as a, uh, at first it's a, it's a form of communication. It's social media, whatever that means. And I'm sure you're going to explore that through the course of this podcast, but it's uh, also a, a form of microblogging, which is a term that came and went, you know, fairly rapidly five, six, seven years ago. But it's, I think, a way to quickly post thoughts, links, news, uh, and then to share it uh, primarily openly with his, whoever wants to read it. And that was, you know, one of the original opportunities uh, and advances that the internet afforded was that anyone could become a publisher. And then people started creating blogs and there were whole industries built around blogging that have are, are now ancient history like GeoCities and all these uh, you know little sub blogs on AOL.com. Well, Twitter is kind of the latest, most robust incarnation of that alongside Facebook where uh, people post things uh, and so I find uh, Twitter is a very important form uh, of communication both to share uh, news stories and for journalists to get news out uh, and it's also an opportunity to kind of create curated lists uh, either through individuals or topics that you find important um, and I think that Twitter is becoming for journalists a great way to follow uh, topics that are of interest and it can be for breaking news things that are happening and the term breaking news is another whole nother topic that might deserve some comment but you know what breaking news was in the 1960s and 70s was something that a president gets shot or something big now breaking news they constantly on cable news show uh, the phrase breaking news and it really is just you know, a way to gin up excitement in their dwindling audience on those cable channels. But, but 
Twitter is, I think, very important in the current practice of digital journalism as a way to uh, disseminate information. Uh, and it is essentially just a recent incarnation of, of that concept of blogging where you can post very uh, short alerts uh, to a broad audience. And, uh, you know, there's also uh, dialogue that happens on Twitter, and I'm not sure how useful that is. People get into back and forth. Yeah. Um, that, I think, can be a, a great distraction. Uh, the speed with which uh, tweets are issued sometimes, I think, are, uh, or the, the, the pace that some people tweet can be distracting. Uh, you know, it's more like if you have many followers, you have to keep up your your activity so the that people feel that you have yeah. a follower. So, so you know, as a metric of your popularity, I don't think it's that that important. You know, there, and I'm frankly culturally quite ignorant. You know, who's the current top musician and all that top forty song producers, but you you see these people have millions of followers and they tweet irrelevant celebrity gossip photos of themselves at the beach. Uh, you know, so there's also a huge sea of, 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 of wasted human endeavor that's, that's shared on Twitter. And I could do without that, you know, but uh, just a little aside about Twitter. I know one of the founders of Twitter and he's kind of unlike, you know, the, the well-known, you know, kind of darlings of Wall Street, uh, he actually did it as an activist. He is still a computer activist. I met him in the late 90s as a digital activist when it was very rare, kind of a radical computer technician who was software engineer who was very involved with social movements. Uh, Evan Henshaw Plath is his name. At Rabble is his uh, Twitter handle. And Evan uh, helped form an early form of Twitter to cover protests in New York City uh, when the Republican National Convention came to New York City. Uh, and that was called Text Mob, T-X-T-M-O-B. And that was really just, you could subscribe using your old non-smartphone, the old, cell, you know, the old uh, standard uh, 2G cell phones and you could get text updates of where protests were happening mm -hmm. where police were converging uh things like that and it was very very early form of twitter it it grew into twitter not long after that protest but anyway that was kind of an interesting little uh detail that i like to share with people when they ask about twitter because uh it does have radical roots in street protest and of course now it's grown into a whole nother thing and then of course the way Donald Trump manipulates public opinion and the news cycle with Twitter is is really a problem, I think. Yeah, one of the interesting things to me about Twitter is it really, really exemplifies the 24-hour news cycle, like you were talking about breaking news that we have. A tweet, you type that out in a minute, 30 seconds, and it's there, and people look at it for 20, 10 seconds, it's gone. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm in shock that how fast we move on from things. Like we talk about how 
school shootings have been around and for so long and then they go away and then one happens and then we just repeat this cycle over and over because it becomes relevant again because we just forget about it so quickly and I think Twitter contributes to that but also it it kind of helps in a sense because it does raise awareness around uh, political topics and just topics that need awareness in general but the 24-hour news cycle is something that I I don't I have a love-hate relationship with it like I get a lot of news quickly like let's say my favorite player on my favorite basketball team got traded I know within 30 seconds that that happened I'm not gonna complain about that I'm gonna complain because it's my favorite player obviously but I'm like, oh my, I'm going to start freaking out. And then in 24 hours, when I hear like LeBron James signs with whoever, I'm like focusing on that instead. So it shows that our kind of, it's like ADD, ADHD society where we need something to focus on really fast. And then our focus changes to something else completely. Right. And I do think it's, it, it needs complimentary attention to print media, actual old form paper, printed things where you can sit down away from the screen and actually absorb a detailed written right. piece, uh, you know, focusing with all your attention on a 90 minute documentary that people have put years into making and, you know, trying to catch all the information and the nuances of that narrative and also uh, even on a screen, whether a laptop or a tablet or however you get your, you know, focusing on some of these long form pieces or multimedia pieces and not just uh, absorbing tweets, which are limited in, in their length. And, and whether you follow the links that are shared on Twitter, again, to these longer form pieces and then devoting the time that's needed to actually absorb that. You know, also you get, major news organizations are scheduling tweets so if they have a big piece or a news story that they are trying to highlight you know they'll cycle that tweet many times over the course of several days you know in response because mm -hmm. they realize not everyone is catching each of their tweets especially if you're following a thousand yeah accounts or more if you tweet it out more you're gonna get more yeah. clicks yeah and that actually brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk about was these big media companies, I guess you could say, like CNN, uh, Fox News, you know, media companies, kind of, it's just an entertainment company that, but uh, NBC, they're kind of, I think they're focused on getting revenue and like, as we call them, clicks, uh, but something that I think we are losing and what democracy now it provides is this uncapitalistic journalism I don't know if that's a real word but we'll go with it <laughs> um, they're so focused on revenue that their stories are geared towards the headline and not towards the content and that's something that struck me about Democracy Now! because I read articles on there like quite often because I like to stay in the loop and try to know what's going on. I mean, I can vote this year. I'm, I just turned 18. Congratulations. I'm to, I'm Welcome to, to the, the horrors yeah. of adulthood. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so 
I kind of want to know what's going on, but some of the media companies are more focused on me clicking their ad or their article for the ad revenue. And that's something that makes me a little bit concerned because what is really going on there? I'm not getting information I need. Right. Oh, I think you've hit it exactly. Democracy Now! is a non-commercial news platform. We produce an hour news show, but then a bunch of other content, and we do it across platforms. So for television, traditional television, uh, you know, satellite TV, public television, then we do radio. The same show is produced in a format that we call radio-friendly. So the audio uh, is... Uh, produced for a radio audience as well and and that only means if you're listening to a TV show on the radio you kind of can tell that it's it's not uh, produced with with a without the visual components uh, and and so to produce a TV show that with radio friendly audio takes a lot of time and attention to detail and then we immediately transcribe all the content on the show so that it's available on the web in a full, accurate, and, and timely transcription, and then it's produced. You know, we share it on all the platforms that you can name. Um, everything, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Yeah, that's why uh, I think yeah, it's I important. I think Google Plus, to the extent that it mm-hmm. still exists, uh, SoundCloud. I mean, just making it widely available. If you make it, it widely. And it's advertising free, and it's at no cost. Yeah. So that is... Uh, a business model that is novel it's fairly unusual and then what we do is we make it easy for people to make contributions to our work if they if they care to purely voluntary charitable contributions and we find that uh, we can sustain our journalism and and uh, you know pay people a fair wage and and do all the necessary things to maintain a robust and and uh, uh, solid work environment for the professionals that we work with, uh, but without relying on this kind of uh, uh, use of the, av- the the audience, you know, selling the attention of the audience to advertisers. And I think really what we're seeing now in media is the uh, radical transformation of how advertising occurs. Uh, with Google and Facebook capturing so much of the digital advertising business uh, that was traditionally locked up by a few TV, you know, the old over-the-air broadcasters back when we had, you know, three or four channels when I was a kid. Now it goes up to, you know, 500 channels, but, you know, each has a very much smaller audience. Um, Take cable news, cable TV, for example, you still had to do fairly arcane, indirect measurements of audience to figure out who's watching so that you could sell, you know, tell Chevrolet, you really want to advertise on this TV show because people like Hugo, 18-year-olds, are watching. You need to capture that audience. But now, again, as this new era that we're in where companies like Facebook in particular are monitoring, tracking, surveilling all of your interests, all of your activities online, 
where your phone is, presuming it's in your pocket or in your hand, you're going to different places, you're, you're near other people, you're sharing with people. So all that has just come out recently in, in better view of just how intensively these massive corporations like Facebook and Google are monitoring the user and it's really in order to target these users for very specific advertising to track you uh, and and that's where they're making their money I do think that it's a it's a societal problem it's now a global problem because these are global companies and um, I think there has to be a reckoning um, you know I would like to see people maintain the same level of engagement with all the digital tools I think the digital tools like smartphones, laptops, the internet have leveled the playing field. So it used to just be you'd sit at home and CBS, NBC or ABC and to a lesser extent PBS would pipe content into you and this is what I grew up with. Mm -hmm. You want to see MASH, you sit down on that day of the week at that hour and you watch it and there's no back then there was no way to record TV, nothing. It was like you sit down and watch it when it plays and they're going to show you an ad and you have no choice but to sit through it or to get up and stretch your legs. But anyway, nowadays it's much different. You have content where you want it, when you want it, on the device you want it. And so uh, they're getting more sophisticated in their how they advertise. So I do think it's, it would be better if people got away from some of the silos, these corporate platforms like Facebook, uh, and we had a more democratic non-commercial array of interrelated websites and digital communication platforms where people could share and where there's no one in the corporate headquarters tracking everything you do and trying to figure out you know you're you're trying to produce what what uh, Cambridge Analytica the controversial company that data mined Facebook users data uh, they were producing psychographic profiles, right? Figuring out who you are, what your interests and, and needs and wants are, and, and what your political affiliations probably are. And so I think we need to do that. Tim Wu is kind of a very innovative uh, kind of digital uh, expert uh, at Columbia University, and he recently wrote a piece in the New York Times that was called for don't fix or reform Facebook, just replace it. And that's kind of the spirit of what I'm talking about here is just get back to, you know, WordPress blogs and make it in a way that it's, it can still be shared with the people who want to follow you or who you want to share it with, but it isn't controlled and data mined by these nefarious for-profit companies. Right. And I want to give like some credit to the big, huge corporation companies because they are operating in a world that runs on capitalism. Their whole goal is to make money and they use something that people were giving them, whether or not it was to their knowledge that they were giving them, that it was given to them. They use something that was given to them to make money and that whole business model of this capitalistic business model it worked for them they have 
they're huge. They make tons of money, but again, that's not that's not something I personally want to happen to me, or that's not something I think is fair to all of these people who <laughs> at all whatsoever don't know what's happening to their data or they're being tracked all the time. We know that you looked at LeBron James jerseys on the internet, so now we're going to put it on in your Facebook feed. Right. No, that and that's one example. I think that's, I mean, that's a fairly innocuous, like, okay, following a, a, a celebrity or an athlete, um, but you can see where, uh, you know, one example we recently had, uh, another really brilliant uh, analyst uh, of the uh, digital frontiers that we're crossing is uh, Zainab Trufechi, and I've known, I've known her for about 20 years. She uh, was appeared on Democracy Now! recently, and, and she, she demonstrated or she relayed the findings of a computer scientist who said, I think we, could, we can use Facebook data to predict who is bipolar and to predict when they're going to fall into a manic phase or enter a manic phase. Uh, and then you could sell them things because there's this, you know, a, a, a condition of, you know, manic depressiveness or bipolar disorder, whatever you call it, that, you know, people, when they're manic, they're feeling elated, they're feeling positive, and they are more susceptible to things like uh, making uh, impulse purchases or to go gambling at a casino. And, and this computer science professor actually demonstrated that you can predict from people's Facebook behavior when they're going to actually start enter a manic phase. And then the idea is, well, if you're a savvy casino owner, you target that person with you know, a free Uber ride to the casino right now, and then they'll click on it and get in the car. So there are ways that these can, people can be manipulated. And I guess it's also just remarkable, if you think about it, how this machine learning, artificial intelligence can uh, access the most kind of intimate details about our lives. They can infer these things from our online behavior. And I guess the other concern I have is we're also turning a corner we're entering this world of internet connected devices, IOT, the internet of things, where everything is connected. So just data security in general is gonna be more and more compromised. The story came out today that a casino was hacked because they had an internet connected fish tank thermostat. So that, somehow that, that thermostat was from, who knows, some Internet of Things company manufacturer said, monitor your fish tank temperature on the web, no problem. But that was a little tiny portal into the casino's vast Internet architecture, their security. Their, you know, it allowed someone to breach their cybersecurity. And I don't know if they stole money or downloaded customer data, whatever they did. You know, it was through this ridiculous, obscure thing, a thermostat inside a fish tank. So that's an example. But but the Internet of Things, there's also you know, like, you know, these new 
smart home devices like Alexa and whatever the Google Home. And these things are listening. And the Nest thermostat, these things are listening to our conversations and they're monitoring what rooms we're in. And and so there's just, you know, there's the dark side of this invasive technology. You know, I think we're beginning to realize it. And I think it really requires, you know, a very comprehensive uh, discussion so that we can decide, do we really want these things? Do we really need these things? Well, I think we know we don't need them, but I guess some people might want them. And corrupting people, I think, is always the best business model because that's how you're going to make the most money. <laughs> but that's, I don't think that's what business should be about. But it's always, 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 always going to be the best business model because people put your trust in you and you take everything they tell you and you use it to make money by re or taking that information and specifically targeting the person again, that's insane, I think. Corrupting people is always kind of a, a good business thing, but I don't think it's, it's kind of like, I'm trying to think of the words to put <laughs> this. Like, business is gonna be uh, a place and a, a working environment where you're not going to care about what people think. You're not going to care about people's feelings. And I feel like that needs to change in order for this invasion of privacy, invasion of people's privacy to change. Right. And I think you're absolutely right And that, you know, the, the idea of corrupting people or just manipulating their wants and desires, right. uh, stealing their attention, distracting, uh, and it's uh, it's a huge problem. And I think uh, you know I'm glad that you're uh, taking it on with this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is just uh, a young adult and the teen activism we've seen since the uh, Florida Parkland school shooting. And uh, from that, I wanted to talk to you about how it's important to educate these uh, kids, these children, about uh, how they're going to speak and how they're going to change these things that they want to change. And we see that in the teacher um, walkouts or the teacher... Uh, protests in Oklahoma and other states, we see that we're not giving teachers the means to educate these children into becoming uh, educated activists, and we're not giving them opportunities to go out and do change that they want to change. And it's important to me, at least, because I'm about to graduate high school and I'm excited to graduate high school because I get to go out into the world and do things in the world that I think will change it for the better. And I think my education, I've been lucky and my teachers have given me opportunities and had given me the right textbooks and 
taught me stuff from these textbooks and showed me that that it's important to have the right tools to speak not only the truth but speak change into existence so uh you know i i'm very inspired the example you mentioned of the parkland students i mean it's kind of remarkable uh it does demonstrate the power of social media if nothing else but you know this particular students they by their own admission come from a wealthy suburb of miami so they have you know the resources mm -hmm. for of a good school uh, uh, but we also see on the flip side and i was just talking about this with my colleague juan gonzalez who's kind of a storied uh journalist uh, you know kind of a legendary journalist but he has an amazing life history and juan was saying you know you look at trump the rise of trump and trumpism um, because Trump, I think, is more of a symptom of a problem than the problem. He's obviously a problem, in my opinion. But, but, uh, but you know, the fact that over 60 million people did do some and managed to vote for him one way or another. Uh, so it's a problem. And he was pointing out that it's a huge, it's a demonstration of the, the, the just wholesale failure of our public education system because you get people who, who, uh, don't have, or essentially, if you believe the argument as I do, that people who support Trump, working class, you know, high school educated white working class people vote for Trump because they think it's good for them economically. Yeah. If they had a more uh, comprehensive education, if they had a more thorough grounding in fundamentals of our economy, they would know on its surface that it's wrong, that you know, you know, electing anti-union uh, candidates uh, are ultimately going to depress wages and benefits, make it harder to own a home, uh, make education more costly. Anyway, these are all uh, things that people who have been granted a, a full education understand and take for granted and and employ in their making their daily decisions and in their voting decisions so we do have to uh recognize that uh there are huge shortcomings in our public education system and we're at a tipping point where with this extraordinary and rapidly growing inequality and the rise of this billionaire class and those billionaires who are fixated on destroying the you know the pillars of our kind of uh, democratic society that have been established over the last hundred years, we're going to see a weakening of public school, public education, and the other social safety net uh, features of our of our, you know, what they call the welfare state. So uh, it is it is alarming, but it's also encouraging. Despite all this, you still see student activism that's sophisticated, effective. You know, they suffered through this mass shooting and responded and that's not something you expect and they also had you know this sophisticated PR machine the NRA and all of their media allies saying it's not the time to do this and they said no this is exactly the time and this is what we're going to do and they they mobilized over 800 rallies on March 24th student walkouts they're supporting 
<clears throat> the annual, uh, I know, service day on, on the anniversary of the Columbine shooting here in Colorado. So I do think that's an example uh, of the student activism. You don't have to go much farther back to look at Occupy Wall Street. Largely, it was a very diverse movement, but it was anchored by young people. And I would also say the Arab Spring was similarly, and that was with people from much harsher living environments, living under autocratic regimes in the Middle East, and they managed to organize very effective protests. Not In not every case were they able to overthrow an autocrat, but certainly Tunisia remains as an example of a, of a successful uh, expression of rebellion among primarily young people in the Arab Spring. Um, I was somewhat younger when I participated in a mass movement to stop the World Trade Organization from proceeding. That was a protest in 1999 that was largely led by youth. Uh, you go back, and so there was this kind of uh, you know, appropriate glorification to an extent of the youth movement of the 60s. And here we're talking in 2018, the 50th anniversary of 1968, which was a seminal year in this kind of global youth movement, uh, revolutionary movement. And I think it's appropriate to commemorate that, to reflect on that. Um, but I don't think like the Parkland movement or the movement that came out of Parkland Two things I'd say about that. One, it isn't a new thing, yeah. but it is. I mean, we saw this on the the women's march that followed the inauguration of Donald Trump was really a cathartic, uh, spontaneous uh, outgrowth of of shock at what happened politically here in the U.S. with the election of Donald Trump. But you have, um, I think, a consistent thread of progressive activism. Uh, it has shifted because. You know, in one regard, the labor movement, which used to be kind of a, a bastion of political activism, has been so eroded over recent years. Uh, but you just, I think there has, we, you know, people have always been organizing, uh, and I do think you get critical masses of people getting behind, for example, gun control. Uh, and you look at the opposition, is it, what is the NRA and why are they so powerful and do they really have that much power or is it all a paper tiger? So we'll see the midterms, you know, these kids are very effective like you, not old enough to vote or just becoming eligible to vote. And yet they are applying the screws to these candidates that are taking NRA money and holding these unpopular pro-gun positions. So we'll see. Um, the money in politics, the influence of billionaires like the Koch brothers, this uh, kind of grotesque uh, problem with gerrymandering where our congressional districts are shaped, you know, like salamanders, yeah. which is the name gerrymander comes from. They're shaped, they're, they squiggle, they move around, and they, the representatives are no longer chosen by their voters, it's been said, but the voters are chosen by their representatives. So. So it's hard to dislodge some of these pro-gun people, but we'll see uh, in 2018 uh, if movements like Occupy Wall Street, the Women's March movement, you know, yesterday there was the second annual March for Science because we have this kind of science-denying administration now, and, uh, and, the, and the 
the gun control March for Our Lives movement, Parkland movement. We'll see if all these can congeal and actually force change at that level. Another issue, like my colleague who just came to Denver, who I mentioned, Juan Gonzalez, has a book out called Reclaiming Gotham. And it's it because he's a lifelong New Yorker, he writes a lot about New York City politics, but he expands it. His thesis is that with the election of Bill de Blasio and at the same time, a very progressive kind of historically progressive city council, New York City, which is a massive entity, has this really essentially left-wing progressive government. And they're implementing really significant fundamental changes to wage, benefits, affordable housing, uh, public education. So they're doing really transformative things, kind of like from like the era of the New Deal in the 1930s. So we have uh, that government there, but it's actually happening around the country. And so in cities like Philadelphia, Jackson, Mississippi, Seattle, Minneapolis, even to an extent here in Denver, we see innovative, young, progressive politicians getting elected and you know, kind of for, uh, reflecting this grassroots activism that also I think uh, the Parkland students are, you know, are illustrative of. Uh, so I do think that we have a lot of ferment at the grassroots that is becoming real. And uh, it, so that gives me a lot of hope. And so when you talk about what you're going to be doing, I mean, I think people malign the millennials so much as these distracted, you know, and you've heard all the, all the tropes. I do think that uh, the biases towards a caring generation who has, you know, they've been handed, yes, this new digital economy that they have to figure out, uh, but and a growing population and uh, globalization, climate change, the sixth mass extinction. Yeah, you've got a lot of problems on your plate, uh, but I'm fundamentally encouraged by what I see. That's, I think grassroots activism is gonna be one of the most important things for in the next I don't know 20 years 30 years because that's where everything starts it's building a base maybe not for next year but it's building a base for maybe five maybe ten years from now and the base is always going to be the most important so we see all of all of these marches happening and we see all this activism happening and it makes us know and it makes us feel like we can do something and it makes us want to go out to these marches and it makes us want to become active politically and that's always going to be important no matter right. what. Well, I could say there's a, a musician uh, years ago, a musician named Dana Lyons, uh, activist folk musician, was uh, performing. And he said, you know, if you ask people who've lived through revolutions, almost all of them will tell you they never saw it coming. It just happened. I mean, it happened through organizing, but you never know that moment when it's actually going to happen. And so you're right. Grassroots organizing, building relationships, building institutions, uh, that persevere and that work towards a goal, uh, whether it's an electoral change or uh, 
just organizing communities. You and I share a street where people drive too fast. I think we need to organize for traffic calming, for speed bumps or something, so that we don't have this uh, all-powerful religion of, of traffic moving fastly, quickly through our neighborhoods. But uh, all these different examples of how people organize, uh, I think that you're absolutely right, that we're gonna uh, see that uh, mature, uh, use these digital tools, overcome the surveillance uh, that has been, uh, you know, there was a period of the internet in the late 90s, there's a great journalist named Seymour Hirsch who uncovered the My Lai massacre. He reported on this terrible massacre 50 years ago in, in Vietnam. Uh, he wrote an article in the late 90s that was about how the National Security Agency, the NSA, uh, was totally overwhelmed by this advent of the internet and how smart people were communicating digitally in ways that they didn't know how to surveil. Now, Edward Snowden comes out and others, and they, we now realize the NSA has spent billions of taxpayer dollars figuring out how to surveil, and they can now vacuum up all of our data and presumably analyze and track it. Uh, there are some digital tools that you can use to avoid that kind of surveillance, but in general, the these digital platforms that allow people of your generation to communicate with each other quickly, instantaneously, and also globally, I think is going to prove to be uh, a very important tool. Uh, and also getting together face-to-face, -to -face, like you say on these marches are an example, uh, but also doing the traditional door knocking, getting in touch with people so you have uh, rapid responses. There's an immigrant rights rapid response network here in Colorado. So if someone's being targeted by ICE for deportation, you know, we can immediately get a text or an email and go to the place where they need solidarity. That's another example. So. Uh, I'm really glad you mentioned the going to door to door and knocking and actually being face to face with people because that's actually one of the troubles I had with getting people to talk to me on this podcast was I was just communicating through uh, the internet and through social media. And when you meet someone face to face and you you say, I need, I need to do this, let's do this. Will you do this for me? Can you do this for me? Are you available? Um, they're, gonna, they're gonna remember that a lot clearer and they're not gonna flake, they're not gonna, and I think it's important that we, we keep this connectivity with face-to-face -face connectivity, not just internet connectivity. And while that is really nice and you can talk to someone across the world, um, it's, not, it's never gonna be the same as talking to someone face-to-face. -face. Right. And um, the last topic I have for you today is the double standard I think we have in a lot of our um, in media in general because one of my one of my, the biggest examples of this to me is Donald Trump can say whatever he wants whenever he wants doesn't matter what the platform is it's Twitter he's talking in a speech it doesn't matter but if someone else wants to make a political statement, such as an athlete, such as Colin Kaepernick, he loses his job. He 
he gets ridiculed for doing speaking his mind he gets ridiculed for being an activist and i think that the whole double standard is something we need to look at in, in more depth because if one person can't lose their job if one person can't lose their job for doing the same exact thing as another person and that person loses their job there's something wrong and it goes both ways with if someone's accused of sexual assault in one profession they're allowed to keep on going being a politician or whatever the profession is but if you're accused of being if you're accused of sexual assault in another profession the company will let you go immediately you'll be fired and rightfully so but there's a double standard there that I don't think is right and I absolutely agree with you and I think there's a uh, you know such a fundamental distinction to be made between well there are several fundamental distinctions to be made between Colin Kaepernick and Donald Trump but certainly right. <laughs> um, one is one's African-American one's white right that is perhaps the most important distinction but also Colin Kaepernick is taking a very principled stand Trump I don't think has ever taken a principled stand. He's a self-serving narcissist through and through. But Kaepernick, if you consider what he's put at risk to make that fundamental, that, that principled stand he has made by taking a knee, uh, I mean, you can. how many people aspire to join the NFL and then actually make it, and then become the top of their profession, even in the position of quarterback. I mean, it's it's a huge achievement. And then for him to jeopardize that by making a very disciplined, respectful, quiet political statement for just a few minutes, less than two, three minutes per game, whatever it is. Uh, so what he's doing is he's shaking the norms he's challenging these norms that nfl football for example in particular has become this multi-billion dollar business and there have been exposés done on how the the owners you know these elite business owners who own the nfl teams make money from the military by allowing military flyovers and all these expressions of military might conflated with patriotism and all of the, you know, the, the gridiron battle of the football team, this gladiatorial combat. I mean, it's kind of this grotesque uh, kind of macho military demonstration. But in the midst of that, you get someone like Colin Kaepernick, who's actually making this very important political statement. So uh, I just think we all have to support people, Colin Kaepernick and people like him. Um, what to do about the double standard is is difficult. Uh, fight racism. I mean, that's one, one thing. Now, uh, talking about the diminution of, of union membership. Right now, the teachers, uh, I mean, there are wildcat strikes happening largely not supported by the mainstream teachers unions and that's important to note that um you know we have unions are under such assault that they they have to take they have to kind of 
settle, they compromise, they negotiate positions. And then you get teachers who, like in Oklahoma, West Virginia, Kentucky, Arizona, maybe happening soon, they say, no, we've just had it. We're not going to go to work. We're not going to support this. So uh, likewise in sports, you have organized athletes. And I think this whole thing with Colin Kaepernick would end on a weekend between a Sunday and a Monday if the players just said, we're not suiting up. You get no game unless someone hires Colin Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, a problem because, right, these, you know, many of them come from poor backgrounds and they've, uh, they've achieved this level of success in the sport and they're making money and they have a few years of good football playing in them and all the damages, the ravages of the sport, the likelihood of traumatic brain injury that happens, all of these things have to go into the calculus of can you risk your job? And it is kind of like as a society, do we have that sense of uh, the power of collective action? I think it's been diminished in the United States. You see it in Latin America. Uh, you know, people march in, in the Arab Spring, another example, just like people just said, screw it, we're going to risk it, we're going to go out. And I think we have less of a sense. We become very removed from that in the United States, that we don't understand that uh, you can topple a dictator by surrounding the legislative headquarters or the, the, head, you know, the palace, the, the, the White House, and, and occupying it with a million people for you know, two, three, four, five, six weeks. Eventually, there's so much pressure brought to bear on these institutions. They're much more fragile than we think. Uh, so I wish, uh, you know, don't, not to leave it on all the athletes. It's also the fans uh, need to take action. Um, and you can do that through economic boycotts of sponsors. Uh, you know, there are different ways. I don't know. I haven't really thought too deeply about how we could collectively, for example, uh, help Con Kaepernick uh, get the job that he clearly deserves. But uh, making it financially um, impossible for the owners because the owners are taking collective action right someone out there wants to hire him for sure why not because you want to win but apparently there's been a a decision not to hire him so so there is collective action happening but it's only at the owner level and you know that's two three dozen white men mostly so let's talk about how to organize Player solidarity and fan solidarity, couple that with boycotts of the principal sponsors, uh, and then, you know, let Mike Pence and Donald Trump, you know, they'll, uh, right, Trump, or Pence left a game, right, because there was a, people were taking a knee. Uh, let them leave. That's fine. But I think we really need to, uh, you know, it, it would even go more fundamentally to this whole notion of the uh, the national anthem as kind of a fairly new uh, tradition at professional sporting games. You know, it's not, it, it was done over the decades, but it really has become this mandatory event at the beginning of a game fairly recently. And, uh, and frankly, it's one of the worst, if not the worst, national anthems on the planet. I mean, it really is yeah. a stupid national anthem. So let's just like uh, put aside all of our patriotic fervor and just say, let's get a new national anthem and, 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 and reflect the, the actual diversity of our country and stop celebrating, you know, one of these, you know, Civil War battles. Anyway, I could go on and on, but 
but I do think that you've you've touched on a on an important point. Uh, Donald Trump was given hundreds of millions of dollars of free airtime, if not over a billion dollars of free airtime during his campaign. Uh, Bernie Sanders got minutes or less than minutes. I mean, he was essentially ignored by the mainstream media. So Trump can go and give speech after speech after speech during his campaign, and these cable networks would run it all the way through every racist, jingoistic, nationalistic comment, parody, you know, broadcast coast to coast. And someone like Bernie Sanders doesn't get equal time. That's a problem. So I think that, you know, podcasts like yours are clearly uh, a, uh, it's a very important new part of the uh, media movement. One thing that I wanted to mention was even within the sports world, there's a contrast in the way leagues handle kind of not even handle but like operate around the whole national anthem kneeling and the nfl it has treated it in a way where if you kneel you're not going to have a job well the nba has not they've said if you kneel we're not they've collectively agreed not to kneel at all but the nba also encourages players to speak in uh activist sense and they encourage their their players to put their ideas out there even if they're not that good but I think there is even a whole different way of thinking even within sports leagues and the commissioner of the NBA is completely different to the commissioner of the NFL and they have their policies are so different and I think if they just looked at each other and said there's something wrong and to the for the most part the NFL has more things wrong so if the, I think if the NFL looked around at other leagues and was like hey maybe that maybe we should <laughs> encourage our players to speak out maybe that will help well I mean you clearly know much more about this than I do but I I would have to just say any sport where you know half the players end up with brain damage and dying painful deaths in their 50s is probably time to get rid yeah. of that sport myself I just completely ban it is what uh, I, I but I'd you know I have to pick your battles and I don't know if I have the time and energy <laughs> to do away with football but uh, I wouldn't it wouldn't bother me one bit and, you know, I have Irish heritage and, of course, Irish hurling and Irish football is even worse, more violent. Uh, there's no padding or anything and uh, all the guys lose their teeth every game. So it's uh, it's a difficult. Yeah, maybe we just need to uh, to adopt less violent sports like uh, baseball and basketball and hopefully uh, do away with these violent ones. Well, is there any, before? I close. Is there anything you wanted to talk to me about or anything you wanted to ask me? Because I've been asking all the questions. <laughs> well, I'm really impressed that you are embarking on the production of a podcast. Uh, can you explain the name of your podcast? Re remind me of the name and, and tell me how you got the name. I can. So my podcast is, well, the people listening obviously know, it's called the 3AM Talk Show Podcast. And it's called that because in my house 
it only gets quiet around 11 or 12 and so I can only record to like between the hours of 12 a.m. and 3 a.m. so that's normally when I do my recording and I named it the talk show podcast because I can talk about whatever I want I don't have to fit into a certain category excellent well that was very revelatory and I'm I'm (laughs) curious about what's making all the noise over there but hey it's uh, you guys are a great family so whatever you're doing keep doing it thank you so much uh, and thank you for holding the microphone the whole time because we're on a budget and we can't afford uh, microphone stands. Okay, so. well, there may be a couple <laughs> mic stands coming your way because uh, I have an angle on, I have a line on a couple. So I'm glad to have done it though. Very, very good so podcast. Much. Good luck. Thank you for being on. Thank you for listening to today's 3 a.m. talk show podcast. To contact us, please visit our website at hugovantbeard.com. Today's episode is brought to you by the Denver Waldorf School. Please attend senior projects on Friday, April 20th and Saturday, April 21st at the Denver Waldorf School. We hope you come back for the next episode.